Better than I deserve. Huh? Better than you deserve. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, as long as most of us fit into that that category, we're okay. Um, I think I think that's true for most everybody. Exactly. Not everybody, but most. Yeah. So, uh, listen. Um, thank you so much for um, for agreeing to join uh, me today to chat about nothing in particular, and um, um, but what's called um, on the podcast or the YouTube channel Surgeons Lives, but the strap line to that is stuff that matters, um, which is a little bit more than just how many papers you wrote or, or uh, how many operations you did. Um, and, you know, in this, um, in this, uh, in these interviews, I've been talking to people from around the world in every different specialty, young and older and etc cetera, etc cetera, and everywhere in between um um but uh um you're my first uh person who has um spent a career um largely overseas um um so um i'm hoping uh, it'll be very interesting for people um uh, what I normally ask people to do, and if it's okay with you, I'll ask you to do it, is to start us off with the uh, words that uh, start with, I was born in. I don't mean what year, by the way. <laughs> um, I don't mind sharing that either, but that's another thing. <clears throat> so I was born in the 40s, uh, and uh, my dad was a Baptist preacher in Donaldson, Tennessee, and I was born in Nashville. Uh I grew up different places. Uh, we were in Donaldson for a while. We were in Kentucky for a while. We were in Knoxville, Tennessee for a while. But we moved to uh, Jackson, Mississippi in 53 in the third grade. And I finished through high school there in 62. I went to Vanderbilt for four years undergraduate, three and a half. And then I was at Vanderbilt Medical School, finished in the 70s, 1970. I was manager and trainer of the basketball team for four plus years and also was trainer for the football team, student trainer, uh, and thought probably I'd go into orthopedic surgery. I did orthopedic surgery every summer for three years in medical school and then uh, went off to Baltimore and uh, had a great innings there. We were in the Baltimore Bethesda area from 70 to 77 and did general surgery at Hopkins, did two years. Back then, everybody had is Vietnam War, everybody had Berry Plan or Vietnam, or <clears throat> if you were a male, uh, you owed the government two years of service. And it turned out that I was in what we called a yellow beret. So like at the 11th hour, I applied to the public health service uh, and was uh, accepted to do uh, the National Cancer Institute surgery branch in Bethesda, Maryland. So I did two years of residency, went to Bethesda for two years, came back to Baltimore for another three or four years, uh, and was supposed to stay on faculty at Hopkins and do thoracic oncology. When I was in Bethesda, we had my assignment of what I worked with. I was at a head and neck clinic for two years, did clinical for about eight months and did research, but we were doing a neoadjuvant therapy for squamous cell carcinoma, the head and neck. And we had right. some positive for that. And that was before we were really doing it with esophageal cancer or lung cancer, which was what I was going to be doing had I stayed on. And for a variety of circumstances, which we can discuss, uh, we, I did, was not at peace uh, with uh, 
buying a house and settling down. That my granddaddy taught me that nobody owns a cow, but that the cow owns them. And if you buy a house and you get your kids in public schools or local schools and stuff, it's going to be hard to extricate you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, and I read, um, I read that uh, during your, um, uh, during your training years, shall we call it, um, you spent uh, um, a few months with um, an interesting and intriguing man. I think that's what you're meant to say nowadays, um, uh, Ronald Belsey. Um, I was his last, uh, I think I was his last registrar at French A Hospital right outside of Bristol. <laughs> and then by age, he had to retire. But he also had a practice at a private hospital there. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the bottom line is I spent six fascinating, wonderful months with Belsey. There was another attending there as well, but Belsey was the, that was the arrangement piece and everything that Skinner and uh, other people from the Hopkins program had to Mark Oranger in particular, who yeah. went on to Michigan and was a leader in American esophagectomies and stuff. Uh, so people like uh, those individuals had been there. Uh, yeah, he was a formative somebody. He was a genius, uh, quite frankly, and uh, a very interesting character, for sure. Yeah, there were, you know, in those days, there were, um, uh, in my very early years, I spent some time with a thoracic surgeon who, in Ireland who was president of the college. And, you know, they it was all like a big family thoracic surgery in those days because in, their, in the immediate post-war years, there was very little of it done. Um, and so he worked with a guy called Bill Cleland, who was, um, you know, a legend in, you know, on the more Eastern side of the UK. And he used to keep a file, um, of all the patients around the country who needed a thoracotomy. And, uh, you know, he would tell my former boss, he'd say, oh, next week we're going to Portsmouth. Could you set it up? Um, and he, they'd go down to Portsmouth, you know, um and do six thoracotomies um you know for fairly futile um <laughs> attempts to cure lung cancer etc uh, etc et and of course you know the chain of uh, sequence was that um you know he'd been uh, bill cleland was the second assistant at uh, the king's pneumonectomy in buckingham palace um where they, um, George the Sixth, you know, had a, a pneumonectomy done, and they actually did it in Buckingham Palace. They set up a, an operating theater there, and they had to convene. He always used to tell the story that they had to convene the Privy Council in the middle of the operation to get their permission to cut his recurrent laryngeal nerve, because uh, you know he had a very advanced cancer and because of his speaking arrangements or engagements, et cetera. <laughs> it's a little different nowadays. <laughs> um, so they, they were quite legends, as you say, Mark Oranger and, and um, David Skinner, and they're all connected. And I, I think he, I saw somewhere you, one of your chiefs was Tom Demeester. He was chief resident when I was a PGY1, which we call them an interns in those days in yeah. junior assistant residents mm -hmm. and senior assistant residents and chief residents and stuff. But yeah, I went in Elkins was on one side and he was, a, went into cardiac and Demeester was, a, there were only two residents that finished in those days. It was actually an extra year that was really a, a junior faculty year. So we, I had Demeester and Elkins and Elkins had played football at Oklahoma. He was smooth as a 
he could be. He was like a Hollywood movie star and very athletic and everything and very decisive. But Meester was more of a, I won't say plotter, but he was more systematic and uh, he wasn't as flashy as Elkins <laughs> in many ways, but he really taught us because he insisted if we were going to get a, a consult from the chief resident of medicine, we just didn't send a consult. We read everything we could about that patient. We tried to expand our knowledge about that patient. And then we would invite the chief resident and say, X, Y, and Z, these are what we were thinking. What do you think? Uh, help us make sure we're in the middle of the road. So he really was systematic uh, and very, very thoughtful. And he made major contributions with the Demeester score and all the stuff with pH yeah. testing. And his son's a very active thoracic surgeon right now in Portland, uh, Oregon. And uh, Demeester was really important for me. I was a Demeesterite instead of an Elkinsophile, though I like them both a lot. But I spent a lot of time with uh, Demeester. Yeah, and uh, when I went to upstate New York, my my chairman there um, was Jeff Peters, who was, um, you know, so in you the... You were at Rochester, you were at Strong Memorial. Correct, yeah. Meliore. Yeah, exactly. Never better. Exactly, so, and he was, you know, he was the next generation down, you know, the yeah, USC, Hopkins, right. yeah, USC, I, I and that him. lot, you know. Um, so you said you were not at peace. Um, and so this was one of the fig, the famous, um, Yogi Berra forks in the road and you had to take it. Um, and you, you did not take the standard option. Well, there's a history behind that to some extent. Well, first off, my dad was a Baptist preacher. Mm -hmm. So growing up, uh, you know, we had missionaries coming through our church. Some were medical, but most of them weren't. But there were medical missionaries that came through a few. Uh, and then uh, when my wife and I got married, we got married uh, before we went to medical school. So we got married when we were like 21. And we basically said, we're not going to take a sabbatical on our spiritual, our religious life. We'll go to church every Sunday. Uh, we got married uh, March before we started medical school in September. And so when we started medical school, I saw a notice that said Christian Medical Society is going to meet on Tuesday night, six o'clock for one hour. And I said, why don't we do that? We won't go to Wednesday night prayer meeting. We'll count that as our Wednesday night prayer meeting kind of a thing. And we went there and there were only like 12 of us. One had spent some time in Zaire, DRC, we call it now, mm -hmm. and was planning to do part-time mission work. Another guy was a pulmonary fellow and he was planning to go to Nigeria with the Southern Baptist Convention. And another lady who was a third-year medical student, Rebecca Naylor, was planning to go to India. And she actually went there for 30 or 35 years. And she went back to UT Southwestern and became uh, the third-year clerkship coordinator and won an Association of Surgical Education National Teaching Award. So there were three people there in a group of 12 or 13 that were actually thinking about doing what we would call international or global mm -hmm. surgery right mm -hmm. now, but doing it through their church. So, you know, I went to medical school. I was a little bit naive. I thought you either went to community practice or you went into academics. But, you know, there's government, there's yep. research, there's policy. There's so many different things you can do nowadays. You can go and work for the lawyers and different things like that. There are a lot of things you can do at the present time. But anyway, that seed was kind of planted. Then the next step was when I was a uh, senior, we went to England and had a great time. So I spent one summer in Nashville doing orthopedics. I went to England, I went to, uh, uh, we had a terrific uh, couple of rotations each of the summers and everything. 
uh, and then uh, my between third and fourth year, I went and did orthopedics in London, Royal National Orthopedic Hospital. So I was really tracking along being an orthopedic surgeon. And when I got to Baltimore, in those days, you just had a PGY-1 and PGY-2 year, and then you decided to go into neurosurgery or yeah. colorectal, mm -hmm. which didn't exist then, uh, plastic surgery or something else like that. So because we had this uh, two-year commitment that was already set for two years after I got there, actually, I got a call from the chair there uh, to, to join uh, the orthopedic residency, but I told him I had to go to Bethesda. I was four years away and would wait and see what happened and everything. But my final year of medical school, it was during the Vietnam War, uh, New England Journal of Medicine basically essentially gave hard copies of medical journal to medical students for a trivial fee. And in the back of the, one of the New England journals, my fourth year of medical school, there was a letter to the editor. And it said, uh, I'm the only physician in this part of Nigeria. They're like, I take care of like a million and a half patients. My son has got X, Y, and Z disease. I'm going to have to take him to the States for care. I don't know when I'll be back. How about some of you bleeding heart liberals who are marching on Saturday against the war in Vietnam, getting off your butts and coming over here and helping uh, some some uh, sick folks, uh, you know, go, marching on Saturday, going to your country club buffets on Sunday, uh, come over here and help some of these sick folks. I actually cut that out, put it in my back pocket, went off, had a great innings at Hopkins, had a great innings at Bethesda, and I was made all the interviews with the head of oncology. Bricks Baker was important to me. Dr. Zydema was important to me, the head of medical oncology. I made all the tours. They took me to the golf courses. Different yep. things like that. So it was, I was pretty well set, but I just didn't, uh, I looked around Baltimore and they had really, really good surgeons standing in line to do what we would, people would call minor procedures. I don't think there are any minor procedures, just minor surgeons, but that's what they would say. But I mean, we had a boatload of uh, really great surgeons who were not that active uh, clinically and everything. And I just said to my wife, I said, I'm not, I don't, I don't feel right about this. I said, you know, it's it was mathematics. Part of it was mathematics. It was numerator, denominator. How many yep. surgeons were for how many population? And Baltimore, they had a lot of surgeons for a small population as opposed to some places in sub-Saharan Africa. I'd originally planned to go to medical school uh, and then go back to Mississippi and try to address healthcare needs of the yeah. underserved, both the poor whites and the blacks, which yeah. was really a yeah. challenge. We only have 6 million people in Mississippi, but you know, we're, I don't, we jokingly say that the, uh, the, the, the motto for the state of Arkansas is thank God for Mississippi. Sure. But, uh, uh, though actually there's an article in the New, in the New York Times yesterday about uh, Mississippi has some things to teach the rest of the nation about education, uh, which is interesting. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that uh, I went in to talk to my professor and he made all the difference in the world. So I got to know Zydema real well because I've been there for a lot of years with him and everything. Uh, and uh, he smoked a pipe. So I went in and I said, well, my wife and I have been thinking about it, praying about it. I told my wife, I said, why don't we go? And if even if we just work for three years, which was kind of like the first tour, I said, that would be a tenth of our projected 30-year career. So that way, if we, if we don't like it, we'll come back. We've tied our career. And then if we don't like it, we can come back and we can go to the country club buffet. And I also gave her like security council right to veto anything. If we get there and she's six months in a year and it's driving yeah. crazy. We had two kids, first grader, second grader. 
I said, if you say we're coming home, we're coming home. So under those ground rules, she said, I don't want, uh, we need running water and I don't want to teach the kids. And so bottom line, I went and talked to Zydema. I said, uh, this is what we've been thinking. We've been praying about it, da, da, da. And this was one of the most important three minutes in my whole life. It turns out for my whole vocation, which I prefer as opposed to career. Uh, he puffed on his pipe two or three times. He's now deceased. He looked up at the ceiling and he said, well, if I'm going to be out recruited, I'd rather be out recruited by God than anybody. <laughs> and then he said, you know, if it doesn't work out, if there's a coup, if somebody gets sick, uh, da, 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 when you have state side assignment, let me know a year ahead of time. I will have a job for you for your furlough year. And you tell me if you want to be Baltimore City, Hopkins and VA. And he also said, as long as I'm chair, you have a job. Uh, so he was my security blanket. Uh, yeah. as it were. And uh, that was very thoughtful. I said, well, I won't hold you to that, but I'm very grateful for it. So anyway, make long story short, we went on through the Southern Baptist Convention, Foreign Mission Board, it was called then, International Mission Board, it's called now. Uh, and we ended up, I went to planning, I asked them, could we go to Kenya? Because they had one of their people who had been on the field for 10 years that they had assigned to the University of Nairobi. And I thought that would be a great place to go and I could go and join him and everything. They said, well, that's still an experiment with us. We don't know if we want to do that or not. Uh, uh, won't you go and check with the people in West Africa? So I walked across the hall, talked to the people there. And I said, do you have any? I said, I don't want to go and do a lot of hernias. I want to go and train Nigerians or somebody to perform cases that need to be performed. I'm a surgical educator uh, sort of thing. And he said, first off, he offered me Nalera Gugana. They say it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. And then I said, well, how many residents do they have there? And they said, they don't have any residents. And I said, well, who has some people in training? He said, well, in Abomashaw, they've got four uh, people who are one year out of medical school. So it's like an intern. Uh, so Nigeria would be the place in West Africa that we have somebody that's, in, that's got a training capability and facility. So that's what we ended up signing up for. It turned out that there was a library right across the street from the hospital that had been founded in 1907. And so when we finished residency, we went to seminary for six months, which was wonderful. Then we went to orientation for three months. And then in April of uh, 78, Maggie and I, and a first grader and a second grader, we went to Obamashaw, Nigeria, which is in the southwest Yoruba area. So you fly into Lagos and it's like two, two hours by road north uh, through Ibadan, which is one of the largest black cities in the world. Yeah. Uh, uh, Lagos is a state, Abaddon's a city. Uh, but anyway, uh, and the first medical school in uh, Nigeria was in Abaddon, uh, 1948. Uh, so uh, we settled down there and we spent 15 years there, but we would do three years there, one year back at the VA in yeah. Baltimore. So I did a three one, three one, three one, three, and Three or four things happened in one, the denomination I was with took two giant steps and moved to the right, joined the John Birch Society. Uh, I was kind of a beer drinking Baptist with a lowercase b, and I was not truth in advertising. Uh, and we had people that we had trained up who were ready to take leadership roles in the hospital. Yeah. But in the Yoruba, uh, they have lots of quotes and aphorisms and everything. One of them is, uh, why do we need a new chief if the old chief is still here? So I was like a a chair that was blocking the ascension of younger yep. people coming along behind. 
So we decided my, my, my dad was going blind. My mother was getting dementia. Maggie was an only child. Her father died our first year of medical school. So we said, why don't we just go back for a year, reevaluate, see where we might go next, things like that. And uh, Hopkins and Maryland, when they built a new VA, it was going to be a, a University of Maryland facility, whereas the VA I was in was a Hopkins facility. So I was going to have to change faculty appointments. And as we were driving down, and I was visiting Professor Vanderbilt while we were on the I-81, I thought for about an hour about it. And I said, Maggie, what do you think if we transfer to Vanderbilt, if they have a position that way would be an hour from your mother and six hours from my folks, as opposed to 13 or 14 hours? She said, that'd be great. So I talked to the chair. He said, if you want to come for a year, that's easy. I can get you a spot at the VA for a year. If you want to come for 20 years, that's a problem. So we went there. And make a long story short, after I'd been there for two years, they asked me to be program director in general surgery. And that yeah. was a perfect fit because that's actually what yeah. I've been doing in uh, Nigeria. And mm. we ended up staying 23 years. Uh, so when I and turned to 2009, uh, I was uh, 65. I told my two chairs. I had a meeting with them, called a meeting with them, and I said, I'm giving you a five-year warning uh, when it gets to be 2014. I'm going to resign as program director. I don't think a 70-year-old needs to be talking to 25 and 30 years old. You don't need, uh, you need to get some younger blood in. So you've got five years to find somebody, and I'll stay here that long as if health's good and you want me to and all that kind of stuff. So uh, anyway, so I had a great relationship with my folks, and I had a wonderful time. I would take my vacation time and go back to Nigeria for two or three weeks or to West Africa College of Surgeons every year, really to water friendships. But I'd often take an orthopedic surgeon, a urologic surgeon, a ophthalmic surgeon, a plastic surgeon. We would do a CME course for two weeks using the anesthesia, nursing infrastructure that we had at our hospital there, as opposed to bringing somebody there here where they had C arms and CTs yeah. and different things like that. So I, I, I watered friendships and went back to Sub-Saharan Africa every year for a fortnight or uh, three weeks or something like that from my from my VA duties. So, so that worked out well. Yesterday, um, yesterday I was talking to a, a newly minted program director, um, and uh, I said to him, you know, a couple of things that I've learned about. Um, you know, program directors, having been one myself and watched a number of them over many years. Um, one was that, um, you know, the, the important thing for a program director not to get confused about is the difference between being a program director and the resident's friend. Um, you know, you're not the resident's friend, per se. Um, you can be friendly, but, um, you know, your primary job is is being the program director and it's more like a parenting issue. Um, and the other thing that sometimes one sees is um, where an individual becomes defined by being program director. And I guess it's a bit like what you commented about, you know, when there's, why change the chief if there's a, chief, a good chief there already? But, um, you know, the, 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 you know, somebody ends up being a program director for 30 years and, and really they are, they don't have another identity. And, you know, that's quite challenging because as you say, you you didn't want to go beyond 70, but, you know, whatever the numbers are, the numbers don't really matter. The, the issue is, you know, 
is it good to bring new blood in? Is it good, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any thoughts based on your many years as program director on those two things? Yeah, I think, you know, that they used to quote, you know, you're, if you take a general surgery job or surgery RC job kind of thing, you're supposed to do the duration of the residency plus a year. So when they offered me the job as program director, I said, I won't take the title, but I'll do the work. Somebody else has to have the title because I'm thinking about getting back to Africa. And I, I did that for like five or six years until we got a new chair. And he said, I'm not taking the title. You're going to keep the title. And so he transferred the title to me. But I was called the coordinator for like the first five years. But I basically was program yeah. director. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that I was a full-time VA surgeon. I was 8-8 VA surgeon. I didn't have to generate RVUs. Uh, and the VA is a terrific place to teach. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I had three jobs really before it was all over. I had a, I had a VA job, a full-time VA job. Uh, I had the program director job. And then I had a medical school position as well as a master clinical teacher. So I actually had three salary streams and I worked uh, about 80 hours a week. I mean, we always overestimate how many hours we work, but I yeah. basically was kind of a 24-7, always available kind of person if I was in country, except for maybe Tuesday afternoons when I tried to uh, get a mulligan with our third child who came. My wife raised the first two, then we had an 11-year gap. So on the third child, I had a chance to have a role. So I would take Tuesday afternoons off and spend those with him. And uh, that was really important to me going backwards. But the bottom line, the, one of the things is, is that I think if you have a passion for it and it lights your fire and it keeps you young and it catalyzes you, that's one thing. If you're overwhelmed by getting ready for site visits and all the documentation and all the administration, then I think that, you know, you got to know when to say when kind of a thing. Uh, and I'm still a program director right now. I'm right now in my retirement. I, I tell people, people tell me I flunked retirement three times, but when yeah. we left, uh, our most recent position where I was in Botswana for three years as a chair of surgery. Uh, uh, two weeks after we got back to the States, I became the academic dean for the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. And that's essentially, Bill Wood had asked me to do that a couple of years before, but I said, I got a full-time job. I can't do it. Uh, but what, what it amounts to is, is that we have like 20 programs in 13 different institutions and in 11 countries. And so I've got like 20 something program directors that if they have problems, they will consult me. And I tell people I've made all the mistakes you can make and maybe I can help you not make those same mistakes. Getting back to, uh, you know, you're not supposed to, you know, you're not, are you a friend or friendly? I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I maintain that I wanted to treat those residents. So I had kids that were in their thirties and kids that well, twenties and, and 10 and those sorts of ages. I wanted to treat them the way I hope somebody would treat my kids. That's the way I treated it, which mm -hmm. was for their best interest. I wanted to hold the bar high. Sure. I wanted to play as good a game as I talk. And I wanted to not be a hypocrite. And uh, I wanted to have, and I had a sign up on the top of my two offices. I had an office at the VA and I had an office at Vanderbilt Department of Surgery. And it said expectations. And I would, when they first came in, I would point to that sign and I said, I'm going to have high expectations for you. I want you to have high expectations in this program. And if there's things that you need for us to adapt to help you, you let me know. But I'm here to see that you succeed. If you succeed, I succeed. If you struggle and don't succeed, then that's negative karma for me. Uh, so 
basically I, I, I tell people, and I really love what I did. And so I, in Baltimore, somewhere along the way, when I was back, gave me a talk to uh, Baltimore Academy of Surgeons. Uh, I was in a room with 30 or 40 people. They were all mostly older white males. Uh, and I basically looked around. Everybody in that room was a billionaire but me. Uh, my wife and I were getting what we call support. So I was working 80 hours a week. Maggie's working 50 hours a week at the seminary as a librarian. Uh, and, we, you know, we were getting support. They were giving us a house. They were giving us a car. And they gave us a little bit of money. We got 20K. That's what, I got the same thing as that the maintenance guy did that finished high school. Uh, but it was enough to live off on. We actually saved some money. Uh, but I looked around the room and I said, I'm the best paid surgeon in this room. I just get paid in different currency. And what I tell people now is, well, like I just visited Morgantown, West Virginia, and I was there with Carl Schmidt, one of our residents. And I, I honestly feel like that those residents are my progeny and those residents are my non-taxable income. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of my friends says, you know, the goal is to live below your means. Uh, and that's not necessarily true of everybody in U.S. these days. That's not the mantra that we uh, face with the materialism that we all have. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that we've been incredibly blessed with good health, uh, healthy kids, healthy grandkids. I almost sometimes feel a survivor guilt equivalent in the sense that I don't have a special needs child because several of my colleagues do. And it mm -hmm. really just alters your whole career and your whole life, for heaven's sakes. But uh, anyway, uh, we feel very blessed to get to do what we get to do. And we'll do it you know, for a while. And there'll be a time when we need to say enough is enough. Well, you have, as you say, you've you've failed dismally at uh, retiring. Um, <laughs> I tell people, I tell people, I've got a half-time job now. I'm working forty hours a week. I do like five zooms a day, and then I travel to I travel to Sub-Saharan Africa six or eight times. I go do talks, and it, like in in April, it's, it was wonderful. But in in April, excuse me, in uh, yeah, in April. Uh, we had like five different meetings. One was in Toronto and the rest around the States, but I was like in my house five nights and May was, yeah. I was only gone for two nights and then fixed to go to Tanzania in another couple of weeks. But yeah. So in theory, I know it's theory, not practice, but in theory, you function um, out of Nashville. I live, this is a house that we uh, moved into in 1993. And so yeah. we kept it as a free Airbnb. I had a resident stay in it for a year. I had some missionaries stay in it for a while. I had residents, parents that would be here if there was a health issue or mm -hmm. new children, stuff like that. So basically, uh, we kept our house. We didn't, we didn't want to go through all the legal stuff and charge fees and stuff. We had a lady that's from our church and everything. We'd come once a week, and water the flowers and clean things and check, make sure no water's leaking and stuff. So we had a really a good support team and we uh, used it and still do when we're gone, but uh, yes. So in those, in the, um, now you're, you know, you're doing what you do, working very busily 80 hours a week or whatever it might be. At, well, now um, it's 40, I guess. Well, as you say, a halftime job. Um, but, um, uh, I, but you're, as much as anything else, you're doing it because there is you're available and there's an unmet need in that space. Um, what what's your stance on? You know, I've asked a lot of people in these in these um, interview series. You know, what do they think about uh, 
the chairman who doesn't retire until they're 84, you know, um, the, the, again, back to what you said, um, you know, if there's a chief, why do you need a new chief? Um, are you a believer in, you know, mandating the fact that, um, you, you know, you, you should have limited tenure to let someone else, you know, have a go? Your situation is slightly different at the moment, but um, obviously, but in the standard model, um, you know, do you think people should just move on or rather than clinging on for grim death? Well, I don't know about hanging on for grim death or not. I think it's probably an individual decision. Uh, you know, you, we have so many legal things right here, you know, uh, ACS, the, I think the mantra I hear from the ACS is quality and safety. And I think that's a great uh, logo to be focusing on and have as your, as your goal. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, as far as, you know, should I retire and make room for somebody? Uh, the short answer is, is that I'm just basically, uh, it's a vo I volunteered to do this job for no, sure. no, no title, no salary. So it's not like I'm keeping somebody uh, unemployed or something like that. They wanted somebody that was older. What if you were the, um, I mean, Dan Beecham, the late, Dan Beecham was a very good friend of mine, but you know, what if you were um, the 70 year old chair of Vanderbilt? That's the one I mean, you know, should, should that person step aside and say, let someone else have a go? I think it certainly would be considered. And I think 70 is a good number. You could pick a number. It used to be 65 retirement, mandatory retirement in Nigeria was 50. Uh, I Oof. think they changed it to 55, but I'm just, well, life expectancy, Yes, uh, I, guess, yeah, I guess. I guess. Yeah. Related to that and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and life is hard there, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I, th I think that knowing when to say when is important. Uh, again, I hate to put things in concrete rules that you have to do this. You know, a mm -hmm. lot of times you have to get a physical and a mental and all this kind of stuff every year if you go a year beyond or so. Uh, one of my close friends, you may know, Walter Merrill, uh, who's like Mr. Integrity. But he and I basically had a pact with each other that both of us would be willing to tell the other one it was time to say mm. when kind of a thing that we don't want to go beyond. So I think what happened is like I quit doing clinical work except for giving my opinion and going to conferences and stuff when we moved to Botswana in uh, 2018 uh, because I had too much stuff on the plate because they needed to go to the theater and I didn't need to go to the theater. Uh, so I think you can give up the clinical work, but like Beecham, uh, the latter years of his life, now deceased, he, he still focused on doing his research because they were on some hot stuff regarding, I think you're a colorectal surgeon. I mean, he's very interested in oncogenesis of colorectal yeah. surgery. And mm -hmm. he's got a couple of his progeny like uh, Josh Smith at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And there's another yeah. lady here that's just finishing that uh, uh, is a Marinkula, uh Smith, who's a Paula Marinkula Smith, she did a four-year PhD. Josh did a four-year PhD. She's fixing to go to MD Anderson, but they're doing all this schmad four and all this. I think he had, he had that was his life was to try yeah. to make progress with uh, colorectal cancer. And I think he's got knowledge and skills that other people didn't have. And uh, so Seth Carp, uh, you know, took his place in appropriate time, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Dr. Sawyer's tried to resign three different times and the vice chancellor wouldn't let him do it. So I think each situation is a little bit different. Yeah. Um, so in your, 
I, I hesitate to, say, to use the term spare time, um, um, but uh, if you were to have theoretical spare time, do you have um, do you have uh, hobbies and passions outside of what has been your mainstream? I think it's passion? really important. I, you brought up that point the other day. You know, you could get monocular vision mm -hmm. and just be a grind and everything. So I mentioned that I had been manager and trainer and different things like that. So I'm like a little bit of a college sports junkie. When I went to college, my my bifurc I'd been an assistant manager for basketball in, in Mississippi, and we went to the state championship and things like that. Uh, I tell people basketball is my passion, and I basically said I, I may be short, but I sure am slow. But I was never going to be, you know, playing and get to it that way and everything. So when I went to college, my branch point decision was I going to be a a chemistry major and go and be a high school chemistry teacher and a basketball coach where I go to medical school. Well, working with the sports teams and the, and the orthopedic surgeon and all that kind of stuff, I said, let me go to medical school. And I did. Uh, and uh, that's that that sort of thing. So uh, I, uh, I, I am I have season tickets for Vanderbilt football and we basically uh, hemorrhage in the fall as a rule playing all these sec schools but basketball we actually made it as high as number two in the country and we had all americans i had two people my wedding that were members of our team who both played professional basketball and others that went in and did a lot of other good stuff and got drafted and things like that but we had an incredible we won the sec and back then only one team from each conference could go it was a field of 32 for basketball back in the in the mid 70s and everything and the mid 60s uh, but anyway i have football tickets men's basketball tickets women's basketball tickets and baseball tickets so like vanderbilt just won the sec baseball we're actually playing tomorrow night east eastern illinois uh, but i am a sportsaholic and i know yeah. a lot about sec and the college sports the other thing is is that i love music I listen to music a lot. I sing in my church choir. It's a highlight of the week for like Wednesday night. And we have an hour and a half Wednesday night, a half hour Sunday morning. Then we are, we sing most of the time on Sunday morning. And our choir master, to her credit, says, we are not here to perform. We're here to lead in worship. If you think about a, a, an hour of Protestant service, it's about half music. Yes. Uh, yeah. Sort of thing. But uh, so music, uh, we have a, I have lots of friends. I read voraciously i'm always reading something uh sort of stuff so uh, yeah i have a lot of things that that i think whenever i in my prayer life i think uh i have a lot of things i'm grateful for but one of them uh is my thyroid gland god gave me a really good thyroid gland and <laughs> people always want to know what's my t4 but it's normal it's been checked but uh anyway i just i'm kind of high on life now um I have to say that I have one uh, criticism of you um, based on um, one of your mentees, uh, Jesse, Jesse Wright, um, you know, who was with me for a few years here and, and before he went to um, what Memphis, he calls Yes, what he calls Tennessee and I call Mississippi, um, just yeah, to annoy him. He goes him. down, he does yeah, go down yeah. and part of his time yeah. in Mississippi. So H.F. Mason, he spends time with H.F. Mason, which is one of our former wrestlers. Exactly. So Jesse has this unfortunate habit of wearing bow ties. And uh, this is <laughs> <laughs> something. So my question is, 
Did he learn that from you or did you learn it from someone else? Well, his dad, his dad is actually a faculty member here and he was, uh, he was, he was a chair. He was on the, he did his residency at Mass General. His dad wears bow ties. So he may have probably well gotten it from his dad. But what happened with me was, is that uh, back when I was an intern, my first rotation was in the emergency room in Baltimore in July of 70. Uh, we we wore a shirt and a tie. And if you had a long tie, and you lean over, you'd get in a wound or get oh, on sure. yeah. different things like that, and you ended up tucking in the shirt. So one of the ways to deal with that was just do a bow tie. So that's really kind of what me led me to the bow tie. And once I got it, it was uh, something that I liked, and uh, it's pretty southern. Uh, yes. And I'm pretty southern, <laughs> even though I lost all my accent. But it's uh, mm-hmm. it's uh. <laughs> no, but I know actually I was with Jesse within the last month. <clears throat> yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's a good Kelly uh, Wright is an incredible surgeon and really a close friend and his mother as well. They're just a great family. Yeah, no, Jesse's a good guy. He um he texts me most weeks um with some new and entertaining disaster cases inherited you know so he's asking for advice i think oh, that's no. a sign of strength he always has he always has done and he uh, he texted me just two days ago about something um so so now um uh, not that you're proposing to fall over any day soon um uh, how would how um would you like to be remembered and and how do you think you will be remembered well one of the talks I give, I talk about Dick Kiefer, who was my father in surgery. If I had a father in surgery, it's a guy named Dick Kiefer. Uh, and he, nobody outside of Baltimore's heard of him, probably. He went to Franklin and Marshall, went to Hopkins Medical School. He came through the Hopkins residency. And in 1952, his first job, he went to a vacant field and actually helped them physically build the Lock Raven VA, which is the VA that I worked at. Yeah. So he was a lifetime VA surgeon. Right. And he would go to clinic with us. He would operate with us. He was available. He was feisty. He asked a gazillion questions. He held the bar really, really high. Uh, and so he, so I, I became a very close friend to him. His son, I got to know his son really well. And I tried to stay in touch with him going back and forth and all this kind of stuff. So his son, Robert, called me one day and it was a, it was a day late cause I would have gone, but he basically said my dad had moved to uh, Asheville, North Carolina and he had had some health issues and stuff and he had just died. And I said, Oh my gosh, I wish, you know, I wish you'd have called me earlier da 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 cause I'd gone by Asheville and seen them several times. So I called up John Cameron to let him know that, that Dick Kiefer had died. And when I talked to John Cameron, my then the chair at Hopkins, uh, there was a pause, and then his first comment was, he taught us all how to operate. And two other, two other things I would say about that. So in, in, my, in one of my talks and one of the papers that we wrote, I ended up telling that story and showing Kiefer's picture and showing Cameron's picture and Cameron's quote, and I said, that would be a great epitaph. Yeah. And so... Two things I would say, you know, there's a great quote from like 1912 that says, you know, the, a, a great sur- a good surgeon knows when to operate, a yeah. great surgeon knows when not to operate. Uh, but I've actually, but based on that paper, I've asked, what do I want on my, as an epitaph? Well, I maybe just have a plaque for when I was born, when I died, or not even that. 
but if I did, I've thought about that. And I would like the word Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I would like to be known as an encourager. Right. I want to build people up instead of put them down. I want to make sure that they practice to a high standard. And I want to keep the academic bar high. So if you ask me what I want to be remembered for, it was that uh, I encouraged people to reach their as full of potential as they could or should uh, or were capable of. And one of the things I'm most proud about is, is that we've got several of our, I've got a lot of things I'm proud of and I'm blessed by like, I won the marriage lottery. So let me just be sure to make sure I put that in there somewhere. Uh, and I hope everybody else does too, but I have won the marriage lottery. I am a kept man and any success I have is related to Maggie Johnson Tarpley. Uh, but I, I think that, uh, the number of our residents that have gone into surgical education, that's very, very important to me. Uh, several of our residents have gone into global or missionary surgery, not all missionaries. Some are gone into global surgery, non-missionary through NGOs and different things like that. Uh, but I think that uh, my relationship with my residents, I consider them, I, I have like surgical daughters and surgical sons, and some you're closer to than others, obviously, but uh, uh, I have a whole progeny, uh, like 150 or 70 or 200, depending if you count all the ones in Africa, everything, the, of, of folks that we've helped train, and they're my currency, quite frankly. I mean, right. that that's what turns me on. That's what lights me up. And if you could, if you could sit down and with the 1969 John Tarpley, and now today sit down with that young John Tarpley and say, listen, I've, there's a couple of things I wish I'd known um, and I'm going to tell you. Um, what do you think they would be? I would like to have been a better husband and a better father, especially for the first two kids. I, I worked probably too hard when I was in a bomber show. Uh, I, I I had things that I did with the kids and everything, but I could probably, I, my wife put up with a lot of crap. I mean, she basically raised those first two kids because I was in Baltimore uh, going through residency and stuff. Even when we went to Bethesda for two years, in retrospect, it turns out she was taking care of the kids the whole time. And so Saturdays and Sundays were lighter when I was at the National Cancer Institute and everything. Yeah. But yet on Sunday afternoon, I would, a Saturday afternoon, I would go off and play basketball with the guys in the gym at, at the cancer center at the NCI building 10. Well, it turns out that should have been her afternoon off, yeah. not my afternoon off. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, and again, I just, uh, uh, I had a better chance with uh, the third son to put in more time with him. And I did because I saw that that's something that I, we have a great relationship with all of our kids, but I mean, uh, that's something I, I could have been a better father and a better, when I, I always, when I met, when I got there, go ahead. I was going to say, I always say, you know, surgeons are better grandparents than parents. <laughs> I, well, I don't see them as much as I'd like to, mm -hmm. but it, I'm not in control of that. We actually just bought tickets to go. I haven't taken vacations. One of the mistakes I made, I never, my idea of a vacation when we were in Nigeria was to go to the West African College of Surgeons <laughs> at the kids swimming in the swimming yeah. pool while I was going to a meeting. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, until I got back in 93, we almost never took a vacation. That was a mistake. 
And now, like today, we just bought tickets to go uh, to spend two weeks in Switzerland mm. uh, on Boxing Day and the first. Uh, so, so let me just say at one time, we had our senior son lives in Switzerland. He's a Swiss citizen now because he married a Swiss. Our number two son was living in China because his wife's a PhD in Chinese and she gets goes and works for six months or a year or something yep. like that there. Mm. And our third son was living in Canada. So it's not like everybody's like within a two-state area of us. I mean, they're all over. The, right now, they're from San Diego to, to Geneva. And then our son that was in Canada for a decade, he's moved back to Gambier, Ohio, which is just north of Columbus. But our family, you know, they they once asked a missionary kid, were they more comfortable in the States or in Nigeria? And they thought for a second and said, in the airplane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they picked up that wanderlust from you, obviously, you know. Um, but when I went to Bomashaw, we were we want I wanted to practice really good medicine, and everything, and it turned out we didn't have an anesthesiologist, and I became an anesthesiologist. I'd had an anesthesia rotation and a pathology rotation during my residency, which was a longer residency than most, uh, and everything. But basically, I was on call for general surgery one night in three. I was on call for anesthesia one night and three, and I was on call for OBGYN backup call one night and six. So I was on call 25 nights out of 30, and we operated almost every night. Yeah. Uh, and I would, when the kids went off to school, uh, they were 10 or 12 hours away. That's the only time that I was not on call is when I was in Josh, Nigeria, where the kids were going to school and everything. And when we got back to the gate, they would have like three charts that I needed to go see right now. Uh, coming back in so i think that i worked too hard yeah uh, i would go in the morning make rounds uh i didn't come home for lunch i'd come home for supper put the kids to bed then i'd go back and make what i call howdy rounds which i really loved for 30 or so minutes 40 minutes at night just going around seeing the patients talking to them making sure there's no catastrophes that people had missed or no new admissions and it could be but uh uh by the time i got home Maggie was asleep. The boys were asleep. And so mm. I was an absentee father. And I think I could have done better on that front. It's a common story, um, uh, I fear. Um, so in the um, uh, in the in the coming years, do you, do you have any um, real bucket list items? Well, we're going to tackle some of those. We, we sat down these first I, I signed on to do like three three years with PACS. And the one of the reasons I did it because the person I work with in FAR works way too hard. And I wanted to help alleviate some of his burden and kind of job share with him some. His name's Keir Thielander. Uh, and one of the reasons I took the job is because one, I believe what PACS is doing, which is capacity building. But mm -hmm. two, it was because I had a really good relationship with this guy and I thought it'd be fun to partner with him for three years or so. So right now, health willing we're supposed to work till the end of 2024 uh maggie says we can extend a year if i want to but one of the things i want to do nature is really important and like green and outdoors and you know mm -hmm. somebody there's people that say you know nature's god's autograph and different things like that and uh, um any, anyway uh there's a lot of things but jackson wyoming is like one of my favorite places in the world to go and it's just good for my soul uh, yeah. to be in the Tetons and just to walk and be out in nature like that, pristine, clean. And the other is my son-in-law's, uh, uh, my son's father-in-law lives in a chalet in the Bernese Oberlin Alps in a place called Keenthal. 
And so we go visit our son, but I always go to Keenthal and take several days or so there because it kind of is uh, like going for a revival. Uh, it's really good for my soul. So we're planning to travel. We actually uh, we actually got a car. We left our not our 65 Mustang and our 94 Camry here. We had somebody starting them and stuff, but they both had trouble when we got back. Maggie got a used draft four, but the idea is we're going to travel to Jackson and we're going to do that in September. And we're going to spend some more time in Switzerland with our son and then the Bernie's apps. And so we're doing that over Boxing Day going to do. So I'm going to try to take more vacations, but there's a lot of state parks in the U.S. Tennessee's yeah. got great state parks. I think yeah. every state parks, oh, and, yeah. you know, and there's places I want to go to Acadia and, and Maine. Uh, we love Canada. So we're going to hopefully you have plenty uh, to do willing and we can drive. We're going to mm. take that RAV4 and yeah. uh, try to see some of the country. Yeah. Well, listen, Tarb, I, I, uh, it's been, I, I don't know about you, I'm kind of exhausted now having listened to that life story, and um, I've just listened to it, I haven't lived it, um, but it's been but a wonderful... you've got race cars, you do something, man. Sure, I'm looking yeah. at all these cars on your wall and on your yeah. table there. <laughs> that's no, that's nothing compared to, to compared to your story, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time. We will... Um, uh, this will get released in probably a month or so. Or when it does, I'll be sure to let you know, of course, so you can look at it. On, uh, and in the meantime, you know, look at some of the other interviews. You know, there's people like Jeff Matthews and uh, Barry Salky. What, what, what a star he is for having yeah. and his wife. Uh -huh. and they're another team. We're team oh, party, sure. but the Matthews yeah. are team. Oh, yeah. Well. Yeah. And there's... Uh, so thank you so much. I really appreciate it.